What does the AI revolution mean for the future of films and storytelling? With women getting more opportunities to direct, write, and produce their own projects, what kind of stories do you want to see that explore the complexity of the human condition? Lindsay Anderson Beard wrote and executive produced the hit Netflix original dramedy Sierra Burgess is a Loser before making the jump to the horror genre with Pet Cemetery Bloodlines, starring Jackson White and Natalie Aylin Lind. The story is based on an untold chapter of Stephen King's self-proclaimed scariest property of all time. Up next, she will helm Paramount's Sleepy Hollow reboot as the writer, director, and producer. She also has several projects in various phases of development and production, not only as an individual filmmaker, like Disney's live-action remake of Bambi, New Line's Hello Kitty, and Universal's Fast and Furious spin-off, which she wrote with Geneva robertson Duare, but also under her production banner Lab Brew, including Lord of the Flies, directed by Luke Guadagnini and written by Patrick Ness for Warner Brothers. Lindsay Anderson Beer, welcome to the creative process. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So you've just come out with your directorial debut, which you also co-wrote, Pet Cemetery Bloodlines. Just tell us about the genesis of this project and making that step from established screenwriter behind the scenes to being more directly involved in the image making. Writing and directing was always something that I wanted to do together. I kept thinking that I would be a writer-director of sort of more indie, maybe left of center skewing projects. And then for a variety of reasons, found myself in a very studio driven writing career. <laughs> but it's hard to get people to allow you to direct without kind of building up a basis of trust. And I think especially for women until the last few years, there wasn't much of a focus on supporting female directors either specifically. It's been a journey, but it's been really great to finally be able to direct my own work. Yeah, I'm not sure how it bears out with the numbers, but it's coming across our desk a lot more directorial. As we know, women have always been like behind the scenes or maybe not getting that chance, as you're saying. It seems like it takes a lot longer. You have more experience to yes. get that chance. And sometimes when I would look at the male counterpart careers and like, they get a chance really early. Exactly. And people don't talk about that enough. There's such a history of giving a man who's, you know, perhaps directed a short their chance to direct a feature or if they've directed a pilot episode of something, then they get a $200 million movie. You know, you just don't see that equivalent for women in general, which is really sad. But I think three things are kind of coming together to promote more female directors. And there's obviously the Me Too movement that put a lot more focus on women in Hollywood. But I also just think the popularity of streaming and also the popularity of genre and horror specifically has really allowed more female directors to kind of come to the forefront. Statistically, people are more willing to bet on female directors if it's for streaming rather than for theaters. And because of the price point of horror films, it's less of a high-risk proposition. And so I think more people are feeling more comfortable hiring female directors, which is very sad that you need all those caveats and asterisks. But I think whatever the genesis is, it's just important and wonderful to have more female creators in the mix. Speaking of horror, other 
Although I have to say that I feel like Pet Cemetery has all those strong elements of horror and the buildup and the intrigue. But just to speak about the character building process, you have some great actors there. You have like David Duchovny, Pam Greer. I was delighted to see Henry Thomas. I'm thinking about, you know, some childhood films that I enjoyed seeing him in and coming of age because I haven't seen him in a while. You know, just to tell us, you know, how you chose those characters and how you went about that image world building process and tension and intrigue. Thank you for noting the character driven nature of it. For me, that's why Pet Cemetery was always one of my favorite Stephen King books was because there is such an emphasis on character. And it was important to me to preserve that blending of genre where it's a character drama first that also just happens to be very scary and that hopefully is all the more scary because you care about what happens to those characters. The casting process was really, really fun. I didn't have people in mind when I was writing. I never do when I'm writing. I just like to imagine the people as real people and the characters just real people and then I go about casting afterwards. I went to David Duchovny because he was such a wonderful father on Californication and I thought he would really bring that pathos and beauty to the role. Pam Greer, you know, she's just such a badass and when I wrote that line, I killed the Baderman's fucking dog, that was when she finally came to mind and I thought I have to see if Pam would do this role and it turns out that she's a big Stephen King fan. So that was a very quick yes from her and she already had so many ideas for the character in terms of just backstory in her head. It was really, really sweet. For Henry Thomas, he has obviously been in a lot of genre stuff lately and he's been in some Stephen King things. And since there isn't a ton of screen time, I needed the audience to be able to just look at him and just know like this is a guy with deep history to genre because of the specificity of his role in the town of Ludlow. So I felt like his specific history with Stephen King and with genre communicated that. Yeah. You bring in a lot of this, you know, building upon it's like a prequel of the original Stephen King book and filling in a lot of those areas of mystery set in like 1969 is the year, right? Yeah. Or the sense of atmosphere, the palette, their cars, the sense of old town America, you know, before development and before strip malls. And also then the prehistory of what went wrong so that evil arose in Ludlow. And so it made me think about a lot of these really important issues. You know, what happens when we don't respect the land? What is the legacy of colonization? You know, when we get out of balance, where's the payback? So there's a lot of these things, and we've seen that with COVID and all these things, you know, where we develop and then we have this crossover then with animals. So it made me think about good moral lessons as a metaphor for how we are kind of out of control. Yeah, absolutely. And responsibility is a really big theme for me that I'm hoping people take from the movie. And that's why I ended the film with the quote from the book about a man grows what he can and he tends to it, which to me, you know, always spoke of responsibility and needing to take care of what you create. So you mentioned David Duchovny's relationship with his son, the, the Timmy Baderman character. And it's like, I'm thinking about it now because my grandmother recently passed away. And, you know, people enter a stage of life where they're no longer themselves. And so there's this kind of like, what do you do? They're not quite there. And so that's the kind of relationship with his son, Timmy. I don't know, maybe you should expand upon that. 
Yeah. I mean, that for me is what sets apart the, you know, so-called zombie-like characters in Pet Cemetery versus other films is that it's not like they are completely not there. There are remnants of them there. And that's what makes it so heartbreaking and even harder to let them go and to kind of realize the quote that dead is better and have to put them back down is incredibly heartbreaking. Yes. And you hearken back to the American Indian movement that was really strong at that time. And you know, just talk a little bit about that, because it seems to me we have this kind of amnesia where we forget about this kind of intergenerational ancestral knowledge. Yeah. When I came aboard, I said that I only wanted to do the project if I could rewrite the mythology of the land and do away with the Wendigo and suggest, you know, if, if there was a Wendigo, that was superstition or an outright cover-up and that this isn't a curse from Native Americans. This is something that's existed before time and that there's an original sin by colonists here. I think it's incredibly important to re-examine some of these harmful tropes that we've had. And the trope of the mystical indigenous is something that I wanted to undo here. So it was important to create point of view characters who are Native American. And I consulted with several indigenous groups and and also let the actors Forrest Goodluck and Isabella Starla Blanc really have a big say in their characters and kind of character decisions and how they were portrayed. Not a lot of people know about the American Indian movement because there was this whole parallel counterculture movement happening with American Indians where they were trying to reclaim land and really rising up. And there was a whole really, really beautiful and important self-identity movement at the time. Yeah. And some of those promises that we've made and broken and made, again, you know, some of those are only coming true now. You see predictions that were made. Now we see that, wow, we should be more in harmony with our environment. Speaking of mythologies, because you've worked on screenplays, developing what I think are contemporary Hollywood mythologies, and they're huge franchises, whether it's Star Trek or Transformers, or you have forthcoming Sleepy Hollow or the Spider-Man universe, Wizard of Oz. I mean, these are classic mythologies of Hollywood. How do you respectfully take material or continue writing something that you respect and love and then also have the courage to take it in a new direction? Because of how Hollywood works these days, IP is obviously the predominant thing that we work in. And for me, when you're adapting IP, the most important thing is to be faithful to the spirit. So for instance, Pet Cemetery, my Pet Cemetery is very different than the other Pet Cemeteries that have come before it. The other Pet Cemeteries were very kind of insular looks at a family family. And this is a look at a town and an origin story for a whole town. And we see how the kind of burden and curse of this town it impacts everybody on it. But at the center of it is still the same moral question. What would you do to protect somebody you love? What would you do if you could spend one more day with somebody so close to you that had passed away? And so being true to that spirit and then also being true to the tone of the book was really important, making sure it felt like it was a blend of character drama and horror and some pops of dark comedy. You, you just have to stay true to the essence of it and then allow yourself to expand upon it to tell people who are fans something that they didn't know about it before. 
Indeed. And just on that as well, because, you know, what a charged time, 1969, and you have Timmy Baderman coming back from the war. You really understand, oh, that can be another metaphor for our experience, how that scars us and how we pass on the damage and trauma generationally or to our friends and family. So it's like it just gave that other level of reality. So that's not a horror I can't relate to. Yeah. And for me, that's one of the reasons that telling this story through the lens of the Timmy Baderman chapter of the book made it such a kind of a perfect lens for a prequel. Because as you said, the metaphor is so strong and the parallels to the lessons of Pet Cemetery are so strong. I really feel like the late 60s are such a sister decade to what we're going through now in terms of disillusionment and counterculture. And it feels, even though it, you know, it was decades ago, to me at least, it feels feels incredibly relevant and timely. So I was wondering when creating The Magic Order, did you know it was going to have a classic comic book appearance? Uh, yeah. I mean, the look of the comics are so beautiful, and we use that as a North Star. When it comes to the movies you've written, I've noticed you very much jump from genre to genre. So yeah. I was curious if there was one you find yourself like leaning towards. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I like to work in different genres because I feel like it kind of scratches different itches, and it keeps me from copying myself. It keeps me creatively challenged and inspired. My heart always goes to the darker stuff if allowed to. I love sci-fi and I love horror. Really anything that allows you to explore the human condition and our worst and best impulses in one film or, or series. That's why I love genres because I feel like it's such an interesting lens to examine our mistakes and our foibles, but also think about like what could be. Why do you think sci-fi and horror are such good genres to explore that in? Because there's definitely usually a darker genre. So how do you really use that to your advantage? I think that with horror, we're examining our deepest fears and our deepest weaknesses and kind of coming out the other side of that. So I think it serves an incredibly important function in society, actually, to allow us to face the darkest shit and then survive it. For science fiction, I think it's its own animal. And this is why science fiction has always been my first love, where I think it really allows you to think about our connection to the universe, to kind of be a futurist and think about what society could look like or has looked like. And I think there's no other genre, for me at least, where I feel like action and consequence and forecasting and imagination, all of those things can kind of come together in one story. Whenever you're exploring stuff like sci-fi and horror, is there an opportunity where you find yourself with characters that you really want to explore in particular and do those genres lend to that? Or how is your approach to characters in those? Yeah, for me, I don't start a project unless I have a really clear understanding of who the main characters are and why this is a journey that's necessary for them and why are these both the best and the worst people to be in this scenario? That's a, que a question I ask myself all the time because you need to know what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, what are the dramatic tension points going to be where these specific people can really succeed or really fail in this scenario. So you studied robotics and AI at Stanford well before you became a screenwriter and director. 
you've really been examining what the future would look like. I mean, I know you are a fan of science fiction, but I don't know if you went into that with the utopian ideas. I hear it from both sides. AI and new technologies will solve everything and we just have to sit back and let it do its thing. And then there's that other side of what governance do we need to have in place? Will automation take over our jobs? You've just come out of the writer's strike and what that means for possibly, you know, scanning all writers' works and we can do away with screenwriters. I, I don't know, maybe we can do away with directors, but no need actors. So, you know, what are your thoughts on this complex issue and how can we retain our humanity and make human-centered stories part of our art while still embracing the possibilities for research and other new technologies? I mean, it, it's such a difficult and huge issue. And for me, it, it's absolutely not one-sided and it's not a simple answer. I think that anybody who thinks that AI is going to completely save us is certainly fooling themselves. And anybody who thinks that AI is just evil or just harmful is also overlooking the very, very obvious benefits from drug and cancer research and other illnesses. And there are so many things that AI can help us solve very quickly that we don't yet have solutions to. That said, AI is made by us and it is filled with our own biases. And when you enable an incredibly smart but biased and flawed thing to rule your life, that's never going to end up with the good outcome. So I think we need a lot of regulations. And I think that we should be very scared of what happens when we allow AI to become too smart, because at that point, regulations aren't going to help. I honestly don't even know at this point if we've crossed the threshold. If we haven't, we're very close to crossing the threshold, in my opinion, of not being able to control what we've created. And that does scare me. For the creative process in particular, I mean, beyond the fact that it wouldn't make any sense for people to use AI because you can't copyright it. So studios and networks wouldn't own their own material. I can't even begin to tell you how many problems I see with using AI in the writing or directing process. First of all, if a writer or a director is just using it to help them, I think it's cheating. I wouldn't ask AI to help me write an episode any more than I would ask a writer's assistant to write an episode for me and then claim it was me. I find it very exploitive and lazy to think that anybody would actually do that. And then in terms of just the humanity of it all, do I think that AI could write very serviceable screenplays? I do. You know, right now we're close to having that. If you feed AI 20 episodes of a long run show, it can absolutely spit out a mostly serviceable episode that sure you'd have to clean up in terms of some weird stuff in there. But we're probably a year or two away of having AI that can create okay enough scripts. But why would we ever want okay enough scripts? I think we've already seen with humans behind it, when you just have okay enough scripts and scripts that aren't written from authentic human experience, you get something that's fine, but it doesn't move you and it doesn't become a phenomenon and it doesn't grab audiences enough to inspire you to go to a theater or to spawn seasons of television watching. I think a lot about Barbie and Greta Gerwig and could a man write and direct like a really funny Barbie movie? Of course. But do I think that a man could have ever created the phenomenon that is Barbie? I don't because it was so infused with her authentic female experience in the patriarchy and she put so much of that into it and that's really what shines in that movie. And I think the movies like that where you kind of trust in one human creative and let their artistry and humanity shine is when you create these standout pieces of art that really capture imagination and attention. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've already seen some 
screenplays that have gone through 10 or 15 people and it ends up being like, what was this supposed to be in the best? I mean, they're great ones too, but I mean, I love collaboration. So if that's like what happens with 10 or 15 brains at work, I mean, AI is going to create this strange suit. When you write things by committee, it is under the false assumption that there is an objective way to tell a story, like an objective, correct way to tell a story, which is just not true. Stories are inherently subjective. The only way to tell a great story is for the subject and the storyteller to have an authentic and strong point of view. Yeah. You know, we never know what makes something a classic or a masterpiece. It may be a moment of silence. It could be an improvised thing that somebody just came in, not even the lead character, whatever, or likewise in the script, just something throwaway thing that we don't know where it comes from. I feel that happens less with AI. If it does, it looks like a, I don't know, it doesn't fit together like somebody who's had too much plastic surgery. You need some kind of a human natural. It needs to come out about organically, I think, with the energy in the room. I completely agree. When I'm writing something, I always think about, okay, this was the intention, but then you put real actors in a real space and you film it and anything that comes of that, it's going to be a different kind of alchemy. And there's so much magic that comes out of human improvisation and collaboration. And you just, you can't replicate that trying to kind of game it out in a formulaic way. This is bringing it back to relying on human creativity. If you had these scripts that were spat out, we know like I've seen it. They can type faster than I can type. You know, it's like, wow, I can't even read that. Um, but if you had that, fine. Okay, I agree. Completely cheating and doesn't make sense. There's these leaps. But then gave that to experienced improvisers and then they would have to make sense of it and make lines their own. But I would see that would be another form of writing, you know, in the improvisation process. Maybe you don't have time for a script. Here's an AI. And now the actors can, you know, paper over the mistakes and keep some mistakes in that are human mistakes, which make things interesting. I just don't know why humans always seem intent on replacing themselves, you know, whether it's the industrial revolution or now the AI revolution. We just can't help ourselves. We need to have strong regulations in place because there are certainly lots of professions where we certainly will be able to replace people with AI. But why would we want to do that? Having a sense of purpose and the pride we all get from working, you know, regardless of what that job is obviously so important in addition to the money. I don't I don't understand sometimes where people's motivations come from. It genuinely feels like with stuff like the Industrial Revolution and AI, the intention is make the people's jobs a little easier so that they can spend more time doing the things they love or being with their families or something. And then there's this very thin line that we tend to hop over and it just goes a step too far. And then you have conversations like this where it's just like, have we gone too far? Right, right. Well, it would be one thing if we lived in a completely socialist society where everybody had a living wage and we weren't reliant on our own jobs. And so, yes, of course, unlimited time with family, amazing. But in the world that we are currently in, I think it's just incredibly important to protect human jobs. Absolutely. Where we see everything kind of going a little too far. Do you find yourself reflecting that in your storytelling? Yes and no. I definitely do. What I also try to do, though, is when that starts to happen, I also try to think beyond it in terms of, okay, 
what is the solution to this? What is the hopeful outcome? What can we actually do to ensure a happier future? Because one thing I think is incredibly important, we don't create this sense that everything is hopeless and that, you know, there's been so much dystopian material that we've put out over the last five to 10 years. And I feel like it's almost created a sense of complacency among people where it's like, oh, well, of course, the future is going to be terrible and there's nothing we can do about it. I think that's a dangerous sentiment. I think it's really important to give people a different point of view where things feel actionable, right? Where we can maybe coexist with some of these big changes and adapt and try try to create that kind of more hopeful future. And just seeing your, the array of your projects, it seems like you're creating storylines that might have appealed to you at different stages of life. If you just go from, like you say, from light to dark, like Hello Kitty, Bambi, you know, Wizard of Oz that has the elements of darkness, Sleepy Hollow. You know, how do you write for maybe your younger self? Or how do you tap into the things that scared you, the things that delighted you at those ages? Oh, that's such a delightful question. I do write a wide variety of things that I think tap into different emotions and tap into different time periods in my life. But I also think I'm somebody who's maybe a little half and half in terms of my lightness and my darkness. And I am somebody who has gone through a lot of very, very difficult things in life, but I'm still standing and I'm still hopeful and I'm still positive. And so I try to bring that to everything I write, where even if it's a sad or dark thing, it's a little bittersweet and there's still some lightness to it. Or even if it is light, that there's still some darkness and some reality to it. I'm somebody who's very drawn to things that aren't totally light or totally dark because that hasn't been my experience of life. My life has been very mixed and I can only bring my own point of view. Do you mind me asking, you know, what were some of those things that you know, we all have stuff that forms our impressions of the world and Im informs our art, and I'm no different. Perhaps there was a character or a project that you worked on that allowed you to explore, examine, or maybe heal from some of those things. Oh, yeah. I think everything I write allows me to <laughs> explore and heal. And certainly there's been some very cathartic scripts that I've worked on. But I also, even for the darker things, I like to write multiple things at a time and Sometimes I'm writing something really dark and then also something really light at the same time so that I, I don't kind of sink or float too far in either direction. And I read that one of your most enjoyable experiences in a writer's room with Quentin Tarantino... Yeah, because I love people who are passionate and he's just so passionate. And I've never been in a writer's room or even really in any kind of development experience where a director was just so passionate and so full of energetic ideas. And, and that was really inspiring. Somebody who just completely knows their own point of view and gets excited by their own ideas is, is just fun to watch. I, when it comes to developing intellectual property, how are you able to use that and still draw from your own experiences to kind of develop something new. You know, there are a lot of people who I think feel very boxed in by IP as if it's not their own thing. And what I started to learn to do very quickly is no, actually, it does give you almost this excuse to do something a little stranger because people are going to show up because of the IP. And so if you take a swing, sometimes it's even better. And you see that with like Lego or you see that with Barbie. I think because of the timing of me starting to 
work on all this stuff coincided with some IP plays that were actually really interesting. I just felt myself more free to say, okay, we've got some things we're working with on like the larger template level. You know, we've got the theme, we've got the setting, we've got these characters, but then on kind of the more granular texture level in terms of what a particular character is going through or what is this theme, what is this setting, I feel like there's a lot of freedom to infuse just your own spirit and experiences into something. So how would that approach differ from something, say, completely original in terms of how your process is? Well, if something's completely original, there are fewer parameters, obviously, but I actually approach it very, very similarly because when I'm adapting IP, I'm thinking about, okay, what is the message here? What is the world? What are like the kind of big feel of the story? And then I work from big to small in terms of like overarching things to richer character detail. And when I'm inventing my own stuff, I really think about it the same way. I'm just inventing what those kind of more umbrella parameters are rather than being given those parameters. And then I'm kind of filling in all the texture and the detail after that. So for me, the process is actually incredibly similar. I know that you give yourself permission to take an existing story with a very strong mythology and take it in a new direction. A lot of people don't feel that free. Obviously, it takes a while to have that courage. And it reminds me of the kind of courage that we have as children when we're kind of, you know, elaborating on stories. And I wonder when you were, I believe you started making stories and films from a young age, you know, what were the liberties you took then? I love the way that you described that because I think that is me in a nutshell. I have a very, I think maybe childlike approach to seeing the world. You know, I'm one of those people that every time I see fireworks, I'm like, ooh, fireworks. I think that a lot of people, and especially when ad adapting IP, they come at things from a fear-driven approach of how am I going to be judged for this? How are fans going to react to this? And when I'm approaching IP, I'm thinking about it the opposite in terms of what do I as a fan want to see? What did I always want to see as a kid? What were the questions I had? What do I, what, like, what did I love about it? Why have I always loved this? And so I've never been afraid to take liberties because for me, the liberties are the liberties of me just kind of riffing on something as a fan and lover of the property. And yes, when I was younger, I made a lot of movies and wrote a lot of stories. And some of it was IP based. The first like very long film I made was my adaptation of Great Expectations, which was kind of hilarious and featured Barbie as the stunt girls when I was lighting Mrs. Avisham on fire. But I, I don't know. I've never been afraid to take liberties because I think I've always come at it from such a pure love of it that I just feel like this is my fan fiction. That's great. I'll confess something. My first story I wrote when I was five, it was Heidi, but Heidi blinds herself because she wasn't thinking about horror. In the original story, I think one of the Heidi's, she had a friend who was like disabled or something. Yes. Out of sympathy. I love that. It makes sense in the child. Today, they would be calling child services, but things change. I always loved darker stuff. As a kid, I loved Pet Cemetery, which is one of the reasons that I wanted to direct this film. But I, mean, I loved Terminator 2. I loved Jurassic Park. Park. I loved Pulp Fiction. I saw a lot of things that I shouldn't have seen at, at kind of a younger age. And I always loved stuff that was intense. And I was obsessed with Hitchcock for some reason. I loved Seven and Silence of the Lambs. I always loved that stuff. I mean, but I also, I loved the like 90s Disney stuff too. So there was that balance. Lindsay Anderson Beer's ability to spin character-driven stories in both already existing and original content is a feat unto itself. 
I loved getting the opportunity to learn how the stories she was fixated on as a child were what would later inspire her on her creative journey. As people, we often find ourselves in denial about how our past influences our day-to-day and the overall future. Whether it's the media we consume, our interactions with our families and friends, or how we even play with our toys, it has a lasting impact on molding and shaping who we are as individuals. And whether we realize it or not, writing can have a therapeutic way of helping us work through some of those influences. It's not only acknowledging that, but diving into that awareness that makes Lindsay's characters so fleshed out. They have to have a core, a center that makes some fully fleshed out people and individuals. It is so easy for movies to be motivated by plot and to simply drag characters along, but taking a step back and allowing the characters to remain at the helm of the story, driving and motivating it, tends to connect with audiences more. So often as people, we allow our lives to become predictable, routine. It's as if we're letting our own plots push us along. We often forget that, as the character, it's up to us to motivate our own stories. I'm sure for a lot of us creatives, it's very easy to feel out of control based off what has been happening with the strikes. I can only hope that we are able to come together and push forward remembering that these are our stories that we're living in every day. As for my own journey as a creative, I definitely want to look more into how to challenge my characters moving forward. How can I make them grow, remember their humanity within a story, why they are where they are, and maintain that it's them who remain at the forefront. Now, back to the interview. Since you do prefer character-driven material, like what about the characters kept pulling you back to those genres? It's a good question. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about what draws me to people lately because like I love sports, but more so than any particular teams, I really tend to get behind specific like quarterbacks or basketball players. I love watching people just throw their all at something. I find it so inspiring. And I think maybe that's why I love these kind of more epic and dark things where somebody really gets put through the the ringer and has to give their all to something and come out the other side of it. You know, when you made that directorial step, I believe you sought advice from J.J. Abrams. Of course, he's done so many projects. Just talk about a little bit the practicalities, what he may have advised or others in that collaboration process, which is, you know, people don't talk about it, but it's so much about team building and your relationships beyond the vision and getting them on board with a united vision. Yeah, I was about to shoot Pet Cemetery. I was finishing up my work on Star Trek Four, which I had to leave to do Pet Cemetery. So I had been working with Jay closely for a while on the script. And so I just asked if he had any advice in terms of just practical stuff on set. And I mean, I've been on so many sets, but still as a director who's done so many projects. So he, he did give me some great advice just about making it through such long days and kind of taking time for yourself and, and just keeping your sanity. That was the focus of the advice. And he was just very generous and, and sweet about that. But I think that people think of directing mostly as a creative job, right? Like even if you don't directly conceive of every detail, you instruct and sign off on every little detail of a film, every sound, everything that's on screen, the, the final color, the final mix, every little detail. And you make a bazillion decisions a day. But what I think a lot of people don't understand is that you're also managing so many personalities and emotions through the whole thing and that you work with hundreds of people on a daily basis who are doing their jobs in their various departments and trying to get them on the same page as your vision and and coordinate them with each other and also keep them happy during long days and make sure that they feel heard and there's so many things that happen when you're not even in the room that they get mad about because somebody else did something and then you have to go in and fix it. There's a whole kind of personality management 
aspect to the job that I think a lot of people don't understand. But for me, I would say the rule of thumb that I followed was just making sure that I treated everybody as a human being and not just, you know, somebody working underneath me and think about, okay, if this person's in a bad mood or frustrated, where is that coming from? Because maybe they just worked too long last night. Just kind of keeping that human element in mind and also saying thank you. I I can't tell you how many times on this project I heard the words, I've never heard a director say thank you. Like, What are you talking about? So I think it's just incredibly important to keep kindness and respect at the forefront. I think that's something, yes, more with women and that that feedback. I heard a lot of directors don't even talk. That's the thing. Like, I'm going <laughs> to stare at you and I'm going to walk off. But yeah, I think that's the difference. And I think that, you know, people appreciate that and it brings out more, it gives them permission to relax because that's the thing that we do our best creative work when we're under a certain amount of pressure, but relaxed enough that the joy comes in and the play and the yeah. imagination. Now, of course, the big move is towards, you know, streamers and television. And I'm wondering, and then talking about the demands of directing, but the showrunner, writer, director is also very demanding. Is that something that tempts you? Are you? Are there some things in the pipeline? Yeah, there's stuff that I'm showrunning that I have in the pipeline that hasn't been announced yet. And I love both film and TV, but, you know, it's always just such a kind of I don't know the way to call it chess or checkers, but just to see what actually gets greenlit first. And we spoke about, of course, the writers and the actors strike. And we're thinking about, you know, what is the future of different creative industries and how do we maintain those audiences and how do we keep on feeding them? What are your reflections? Do you hope, I mean, do you think we'll be seeing more of these strikes? What is the balance been struck? Are you happy with it? I think we'll be seeing more strikes. I think that we have reached a tipping point as a culture where we understand our own agency. And I think that we also have a lot of expectations and there's such an imbalance still in terms of corporate power and the haves and the have-nots. And it's something that I think that global warming is only going to increase inequity in that global temperature. And I don't mean literal temperature. I just mean politics and how we're feeling as a society very much trickles down to every level. I don't think we would have had the long writer's strike that we had if we didn't have everything that's going on politically and globally. I think it all kind of comes together as this perfect moment of discontent and saying, no, we can do better and we demand better and we want better and we don't have to make do with what we're just given. And I don't think that's going to stop. I think that's going to continue. I was actually curious because I know a lot of people that are part of IATC and I was wondering if you think that they're going to strike in May because that's when they're contracts are up for debate. I would not be surprised if they strike. My hope is that studios and networks are at least savvy enough now to understand that they shouldn't screw around and should come to it with a strong deal that prevents a strike. But if they don't do that, then yes, I think they will strike. I was wondering how you handle writer's block as a whole and if you have any advice for, you know, newer writers on how to approach it. I don't believe in writer's block. I don't think it's a thing. I think that if you have, quote, writer's block, there are usually only two causes and one is just anxiety that has gotten in your own head and has nothing to do with the creative process and you're just afraid to fail so you're afraid to try is what I've seen in a lot of people that I've worked with and when you take away that fear and anxiety I don't think that writer's block really happens or it's the wrong story for you and I've seen that with a lot of people who have worked on a screenplay for like two years and not finished it and I'm like that's the wrong story try another story if it's taking that long 
long, it's not the story for you. But I, I think that, you know, scientifically, if you don't have a story breakthrough, taking a shower, doing exercise, eating something rote like popcorn or chips, basically anything that's kind of a rote activity that allows your mind to, to kind of tune out a little bit is something that can help activate the creative process. And that's neuroscientifically proven. Yeah, I think that movement of any kind also unlocks the logic of activity. I think sometimes the writer's block comes from like too much logic. You know, people aren't logical for one thing. So if you just move in a way, you're going to get your plot moving. Something's going to happen if something's happening to you. I feel like the energy has to flow. Yeah, I really do think it, for the most part, it just comes down to anxiety and being afraid that you don't have the answers or being afraid to fail. And I think that just allowing yourself to be imperfect. I always tell writers that I'm working with, don't go back and like re-edit yourself as you're writing. Just keep writing and then edit afterwards because otherwise you're just going to keep overthinking what you're writing and just allow yourself the freedom to write something shitty, even if it comes out bad the first time. That's what rewriting is for. And allow yourself the ability to write something imperfect. That's why we have the rewriting process. Writing is rewriting. Yes. Yes. And that confidence that comes with experience, it comes with perhaps having certain teachers, mentors, or collaborators believe in you to say you deserve a space on this stage. And so I wonder if you could share some of those that help you become the writer you are today through their example or collaboration. I'm going to answer a little sideways, which is that I think that the confidence confidence that I'm talking about in terms of what I just said, in terms of allowing yourself to turn out something that isn't perfect and to still believe in yourself. I think that comes from my love of science and my understanding of the scientific process. You know, so many experiments fail the first time or the second time or the third time. Also, so many startup companies in Silicon Valley fail and then they innovate and they innovate and they become big hits. And to me, it's the difference between what's called a fixed mind mindset versus a growth mindset where people think that they either have a fixed amount of talent or they believe that they have a growing amount of talent where more practice and more input can affect the outcome. And I don't believe that human beings have fixed talent. I believe that human beings have growing talent and that they shouldn't be so fearful of just trying and learning and growing. And your personal journey is fascinating because it traverses both the science and the humanities. And a lot of people in this life have been taught that they are separate or they don't have a scientific mind or have a mathematical mind. I can't understand as we think about the environmental crisis. I don't understand climate science. And then you have those in the arts and they feel those are their skills. And then there's those in science. And it seems with this crucial time sensitive issue, you know, this decade particularly, that we have to have everyone on board to communicate the science, to get together. So how important for you are the environmental humanities and telling those stories about the environment that helps us, you know, change our behaviors and save the planet? Oh, yeah. I don't think that there are any more important stories to tell right now than ones with environmental messages. We obviously are beyond this tipping point. We're at a crisis point and allowing people to understand that and not just understand the ramifications, but understand what they can actually do and what life could look like if we did change our behavior and what those steps could be, I think, is our greatest imperative as storytellers right now. 
Well, thank you, Lindsay Anderson Beer. We really look forward to your new writing and directing projects and what comes out of your production company, Labru. I'm sure you have a lot in store for us. So thank you for sharing your passion and imaginative world, creating stories that make us examine our fears, face the darkness, and explore important issues of our times. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process and One Planet podcast. Thank you so much to both of you. It was really nice to meet you. Thank you so much for making the time and congratulations on Pet Seminar and all your forthcoming projects. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Tara Swan with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producers on this episode were Sam Myers and Tara Swan. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk with additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Winter Time was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank you.